Here in this opening paragraph, we might call it a summary of perseverance. We're going to see two things. We're going to, we're going to see, we're going to define perseverance, and we're going to defend perseverance. In the first half, in defining perseverance, we're going to see the subjects and significance and source. And then in defending perseverance, we're going to see our opposition followed by our assurance. Let's consider each one of these, defining perseverance. First of all, who are the subjects? Well, it says specifically here, it's not all of those who call themselves Christians. There are many who are among us that are not ultimately of us, John writes in 1 John. No, its subjects are those whom God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect. Notice there's four things here. They have been accepted in the Beloved, effectually called, sanctified, and given faith. Now, you'll notice in your handout that I have uh, written down for you a number of cross-references within the confession itself. And I've argued on a number of occasions that as we study the confession in an attempt to study Scripture, we need to read the confession not only top to bottom, but left to right, side to side, because later doctrines are building on previous doctrines. Now, we're not going to have a chance to look at every single one of these, but there are a handful over the course that are, that are especially consequential for this doctrine. Notice, accepted in the beloved, it seems to be pulling from the language that we find in chapter 7 on the doctrine of God's covenant and chapter 8 on the doctrine of Christ, our mediator. The theme of being effectually called is not just at the beginning of what we commonly understand to be an order of salvation. Rather, the effectual calling of the saints is like an umbrella category that covers all of the various benefits and blessings of salvation. That's why you see it over and over in chapter 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. It, it runs its course like a thread through all of the blessings and benefits of salvation. We saw in chapter 13 what it means to be sanctified. But notice here, it emphasizes that the faith in which we persevere is not, only, is not ultimately a mental ascent that we arrive at on the basis of our own power and our own wisdom, no, the wisdom of man thinks the gospel's foolish. It's a gift of God. We've seen that in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. But notice what the confession says in chapter 14. Speaking of the faith that God gives to the elect, he says, this faith may exist in varying degrees so that it may be either weak or strong, yet even in its weakest form, it is different in kind or nature, like all other saving graces, from the faith and the common grace of temporary believers. Therefore, here's the key phrase, faith may often be attacked and weakened, but it gains the victory. That is the language of perseverance. That which God gives, He will use, nourish, and cultivate to bring us all the way to the end, safely home to Himself. And so, who are the subjects? It is those whom have been accepted in Christ by the Father, have been effectually called by the gospel such that from new hearts we respond with repentance and faith, 
who have been positionally set apart to become holy as God is holy, that is sanctified, and are now by the very power of the Holy Spirit and dwelling in us, is growing into the holy image of Christ. And the very faith in which we persevere is the faith that was given to us by God as a gift. And so we see the very foundation of perseverance is the grace of God in salvation. It's not ultimately begin with anything having to do with us. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have responsibilities. We'll see that in just a minute. However, the foundation of it, the assurance of our perseverance, is God's grace in Christ through the Holy Spirit. So, we see the subjects here in the first part of the paragraph. But then it moves on to note the significance. Why is it significant? Why is this chapter even in here? Because we need to be comforted. And so it says, those whom God has accepted in the Beloved, they can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved. Now, you may remember that phrase, state of grace, that harkens all the way back to chapter 9 when we were talking about man's will. And there in chapter 9, we talked about the fourfold state of man. Do you remember what they are? Let's review them. See if you can follow along with me in your heads. That Adam was created, first of all, in a state of innocence. That he was without sin, and yet he lived with the possibility of sin. And that's exactly what he did. Which led to all of mankind existing, secondly, in a state of sin. Through one man's sin or through one man's trespass, death and sin spread to all men. Therefore, we've all sinned, Romans 5. But from that state of sin, through the effectual call of the gospel and the grace of God to us in Christ, we are brought out of a state of sin, thirdly, into a state of grace. Into a state of grace. And that state of grace is still prone to weakness. We still wrestle with indwelling sin. We still wage war against our flesh. And yet we wage that war victoriously because of the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And we'll do so all the way until we reach our fourth and final state in Christ, and that is the state of glory. And so chapter 9 introduced us to the fourfold state of man, that is, his innocence, the state of sin the state of grace, and the state of glory. Well, paragraph one in this particular chapter on perseverance is specifically talking about man's state of grace. And so if you would go back to chapter nine, look at what it has to say about those whom God has saved and brought into a new state in Christ. Chapter nine, verse four, that when God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace, He frees them from their natural bondage to sin, we're not slaves anymore, and by His grace alone enables them to will and to do freely what is spiritually good, that is, that which is unto God's glory and to the good of His neighbor for God's glory. And yet, because of their remaining corruption, they do not perfectly nor exclusively will what is good, but also will what is evil. God is the one that converts. God is the one that transforms. God is the one that frees. God is the one that enables. And based on His converting, strengthening, transforming, and enabling grace, we are therefore able to will and do freely what He commands. 
And so it's this state of grace that it says here, those who are in Christ can neither totally nor finally fall from. Now, may it appear sometimes because of the weakness of our flesh, because of the stubbornness of sin in our lives, can it seem sometimes like, am I really a Christian? I wonder if any of you have ever thought that. Well, here it says that those who are in Christ, though for a time there may be appearances that sin is winning because our faith is in various states, sometimes strong but sometimes weak, they can neither totally That means there's never a point in your life, post-Christ, post-conversion, where the seed of the Holy Spirit is not in you, sanctifying you, and God is not at work in you. You can never go back to being totally depraved. You can never go back to being totally corrupted. You're in a brand new state, which means that you cannot finally fall from the state of grace. Which means that you're not living in some kind of balancing act so that at the end of the age you find out whether or not the scales of justice tipped in your favor or not based on your own, the strength of your own faith or the efficacy of your own obedience. No, you can't finally fall from a state of grace. You will remain in a state of grace and you will, according to the confession here, certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved. And the reason, according to this, is because of its source. The source of perseverance is God. All of this, the reason that we cannot fall from a state of grace, the confession says, is because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. They cannot be reversed. If you have an older version of the confession, it says that the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. Repentance in the Bible essentially paints a picture of walking in one direction, stopping dead in your tracks, turning around, and walking the other direction. And so, when we're talking about repenting from sin, that's what we're talking about. That we are, at one point, pursuing sin, and then we stop in our tracks. And we turn around, and we walk away from sin to Christ in faith. Well, when it says here that The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable, that is, without repentance. It means that God will never, ever do an about-face on what He has decreed concerning your salvation in Christ. He's never going to change His mind. He's not going to pull an about-face. There will be no great reversal at any time because God never changes. Therefore, it says... He still brings about, that is, He produces, and He nourishes, not only does He produce, but He grows in us faith, the very faith by which we apprehend Christ and are saved. So He produces in us and grows in us faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all of the graces of the Spirit, the evidences of His indwelling life in us the proof that we are, in fact, in Christ that ultimately lead to immortality. That is the grace of God in Christ at work in us, saving us. So we've seen three things in the first half of this opening paragraph, and it's a big one, isn't it? We saw, first of all, the subjects of perseverance, that is those who have been effectually called by God in Christ by faith. We've seen its significance that though we may still sin, we will never finally, 
or even totally fall from the state of grace, and we've seen its source. All of this is true because God is the one that does it. Well, in the second half of the paragraph, this is where the paragraph gets especially evocative. We're moving now from defining perseverance to defending perseverance. And we see two things. We see, first of all, opposition, and then we see, finally, assurance. Our opposition is a threefold opposition according to the confession. Do you see it there? It is the world, the flesh, and the devil. That even though many storms and floods arise, that's the language of a world that has been cursed by God because of sin, that is violent against us. Here, speaking of trials and tribulations that the believer faces in a world that is cursed by sin. That even though storms and floods come, and even though the felt sight of the light and the love of God may be clouded and obscured from us for a time through our unbelief, meaning there are times that because of indwelling sin in us, we have a harder time believing God's promises, believing God's Word. Every time you and I pick sin, it's because we believe sin's promises, not God's Word. And it clouds us. It gives us a spiritual cataract over our eyes such that it, we don't see God for who He is in His Word. It says it clouds and obscures from us the light and the love of God. God is, it seems, distant from us. His Word seems to ring hollow to us, and that's due to our indwelling sin, the flesh that we wage war against, that is, due to our unbelief. So, we have opposition from the world, we have opposition from the flesh, and then finally, we have opposition from the devil. That sometimes the felt sight and the light and love of God may be clouded not only by our own unbelief, but also by the temptations of Satan, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, I want you to take note of those because they're going to come up later in the third paragraph. All three of them are going to come up again. But notice the paragraph ends with assurance. We have great opposition in this world. We are going to get slammed around by a cursed world. We are going to struggle against our own sinful flesh. We are going to be constantly tempted and accused by the devil. And yet, though the world may toss us around, it'll never be able to move us from the foundation and rock to which we are anchored by faith that we are anchored in Christ, so anchored in Christ that though the storms may howl and the winds may blow and the waves may crash into us, we cannot ever be unanchored from Christ, that we cannot drift away, that we will persevere. And even though you and I are going to wage war against unbelief in the flesh, and even though you and I are going to be constantly tempted by the devil, notice this, yet God, though you and I change, God is still the same. God says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. That's why I haven't burned you all up, is what He says. I made a covenant. My covenant doesn't change. I have promises that I've made and promises that I'm going to keep. And because I don't change and my word doesn't change, my grace persists. So God is still the same. And because of that, we will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation, where we will enjoy our purchased possession. 
because we are, according to Isaiah 49, 16, engraved on the palm of his hands. And our names, according to Revelation 21, 27, have been written in the book of life, not into eternity, but from all eternity. It begins with the covenant of grace, of the blessings and the benefits that we receive according to God's effectual call, and grounds it in the covenant of redemption. All of this is according to God's grace from eternity past, which the Father has covenanted in the Son for those whom the Father has promised the Son on the basis of the Son's willing obedience and death for those whom He would receive as His reward. So we have an assurance. Though we may be slammed around by this life, we're anchored in Christ. Though we have to wage war against the flesh and resist the devil, we will be kept by God's power. Isn't that an amazing paragraph? Well, it doesn't end there. We see now in paragraph 2, we move from, in paragraph 1, the summary of perseverance, but now we see in paragraph 2 the basis of perseverance. What's its foundation? And we're going to see it defined negatively and positively. Negatively and positively. Read along with me. The basis of perseverance, chapter 2 or paragraph 2, rather. This perseverance of the saints does not depend on their own free will, but on the unchangeableness of the decree of election, which flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. You should be taking note of repeated words. It is based on the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ in union with Him the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace. The certainty and infallibility of their perseverance is based on not just some of these things, on all of them. Consider everything that we just read. Consider how that paragraph just ended. All of these things working in concert together according to God's unchangeable decree to bring to pass all that God has purposed for the salvation of His people. You can see how it's just kind of building one block after another, kind of a mountain of assurance, of confidence that we have not in ourselves, but ultimately in the grace of God. Notice at the very beginning of the chapter, though, or rather in the, at the beginning of the paragraph, that it defines the basis of perseverance negatively by what it's not based on. It says, the perseverance of the saints does not depend on our own free will. Rather, it depends, positively speaking, upon God's decree. This is what we see in Romans chapter 9, verse 16. Go there with me. Romans chapter 9, verse 16. Considering the grace of election. Here the confession is just lifting language directly from Scripture. So then God's electing grace, that is those who receive mercy from God, verse 16, depend not on human will or exertion. How can it if God has committed Himself to doing it from before the foundation of the world, before we've done anything good or anything bad? 
If God has purposed to do it before we've done anything, then it cannot depend on human will or exertion, but rather it depends on God who has mercy. John chapter 1, we see the same kind of contrast. Concerning those who are born again, that is John's favorite language for those who are effectually called by God. Says all those who did receive him, verse 12, who believed in his name, those who were effectually called, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is what we see here, isn't it? The perseverance of the saints, that is, the endurance of our faith all the way to the end to receive the inheritance that God has set aside for us, does not depend on our own free will, on our own exertion, but on the unchanging decree of election. It doesn't depend on our will. It depends on God's will. So here we have the basis for perseverance positively defined, not based on our will, but on God's will. But notice how God's will is carried out in history, that it flows from, I love this language, it flows from, remember the confession all the way back in chapter 2 talks about God being the fount of every good. And so now we're talking about that which is flowing as from a fount from the decree of God that all these things God has purposed and of His accomplishing them in our lives flows from, first of all, the immutable love of the Father. That raises a question. Why did the writers of the confession feel that it was necessary to repeat that word immutable or unchangeable twice? Why'd they repeat it? Well, they didn't repeat it twice. They said it twice, which is the same as repeating it. I'm just saying the same thing over and over again. Why do they say it twice? I wonder if it might be because you and I are so prone to question and to doubt God's love for us. So what the confession does in helping us to be assured of our salvation, assured of our perseverance, is no less to be assured of the love of the Father. That the Father loves us as unchangeably as He has decreed our very salvation from before the foundation of the world. And insofar as God cannot change and His decree cannot change, then the love of the Father cannot change because the Father is truly God. But not only do we see the love of the Father, the immutable love of the Father flowing from the immutable, unchangeable decree of God, but we also see that the basis for our perseverance is based, secondly, upon the work of Christ. It is based upon the, eff the efficacy and the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ in union with Him, the oath of God. Three things that we're going to see there describing the work of Christ. First of all, speaking of the merit and the intercession of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9 and 10 so helpfully describe these truths. Romans 5, 9 and 10. You're familiar with it. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. His life is a pregnant word. There's a whole lot built into it. No less than that which he merited by virtue of his own act of obedience, his obedience to the Father under the law, as well as his, as his passive obedience and suffering to the point of death on a cross. It speaks also to his life, which he now lives under the Father at the right hand, having been exalted to the right hand of majesty on high, whereby he now intercedes for us as our great high priest. Ephesians tells us, remember, that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places where he is, we are, therefore we have, secondly, union with him. Jesus says in John 14 to his disciples, remember this is in the middle of that long conversation during his final supper, right before he enters the Passion Week and, and goes to the cross, he tells them that the world will see me no more, but you will see me. In this life, you will see me by the eyes of faith. I take that to mean what Paul wrote later on, that through the Spirit of God, that our hearts would behold the very glory of God in the face of Christ. We will see Christ beheld in the gospel. And so Jesus says that you will see me. Not only will you see me by faith in this life, but you will see me again one day face to face. He says, John 14, 19, because I live, you will live. Thirdly, notice what it calls Jesus. At the end of this sentence, it says it's based on the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ in union with Him. He is the oath of God. He is the oath of God. We see, first of all, that it's based on the efficacy and merit of the intercession of Jesus Christ. We see, secondly, it's based on our union with Him because He lives, we live. And thirdly, it's based on him as the very oath of God. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. This is where we see this language used, and it's so important. The book of Hebrews is really all about perseverance. That The work of Christ is the basis for our perseverance. It's the basis for our assurance. We don't first and foremost look to ourselves, but we look to Christ. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, that is his covenant and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. When you go to the very next chapter, you find what that oath is. It says, another priest has arisen in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
For on the one hand, the former commandment, that is the old covenant, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced based on a better covenant, through which we now draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Who, what is the oath of God? Christ is the oath of God. That God has made a promise to Christ, that he would be a priest forever. And in the context of the covenant of grace, he has made Christ an oath that he can never unpriest his son. And you and I can never be without a mediator that is for us. That's why it goes on to say that the former priests, they kept on dying. It's the problem with human priests that are sinners. But he, verse 24, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. This is why, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, you are a priest forever. You always live to make intercession for them. Insofar as Jesus is the oath of God, based on the promise that he has made him, and God will not change his mind, he therefore will not change his mind about us. If he does not change his mind about the priestly ministry of Christ, he will not change his mind about us. He has assured us in two ways, with his promise and with his oath, which leads us to the final point. Or, and he's done so by the Spirit. So we've seen it by the love of the Father, the work of Christ, that is by his merit, our union with him, and of the oath that the Father has made in Christ. We see it also by the indwelling or the abiding of the Spirit, who in 1 John 3, 9 is called the seed of God within us. And then finally, by the covenant of grace. By the nature of the covenant of grace, it says. That word, the nature of the covenant of grace, is defined for us in the sentence. What is the nature of the covenant of grace? It is of grace. That's what it is. It's not something to be earned or merited. We're not saved or brought into the covenant. We don't enjoy its benefits by what we do. And we don't stay in the covenant on the basis of what we do. It is all of God's grace. That according to the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son, Christ in obedience to the Father merited all of the salvation that he would give to his elect in the covenant of grace. Such that it's Christ's righteousness to give according to the promise and the covenant that he made with the Father. That the Father has made a promise to him, and by virtue of that promise that the Father has made to the Son, the Son has made promises to us such that we can never be uncovenanted, if you will. We are in the covenant of grace. All of these things, the love of the Father, the work of Christ, the abiding of the Spirit, the covenant of grace, all of it gives us is the basis for the certainty and the unfailing, that is the infallibility of our perseverance. No one who is in Christ will fail to persevere. You say, well, yeah, but what about 
this hard life that we live? What about all of the things that come against us? Look at chapter 3. It's here we see the certainty of our perseverance. They may fall into grievous sins and continue in them for a time due to the temptation of Satan in the world, the strength of the corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of means of their preservation. In so doing, they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit. Their graces and comforts become impaired. Their hearts are hardened. Their conscience is wounded. They hurt and scandalize others, and they bring temporary judgments on themselves. Does that sound like a normal Christian life? If you walk as a Christian for long enough, with indwelling sin still in you, in a community of fellow redeemed sinners then most or all of these things will be true of you or of those around you at some point. This is the normal Christian life. But here's the certainty. Isn't it amazing? It's like this paragraph just lists off one thing after another. To where you get to the end of the paragraph and it almost seems like all of these things put together are practically insurmountable. And they would be if it wasn't for God's grace. That's why our assurance is found in that last sentence of the paragraph. Nevertheless, they will renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Is that not a hope-filled conclusion to the chapter? Is that not a glorious nevertheless? (laughs) Here we see that There are many causes for our struggles in this Christian life, at least four of them. We've already seen three of them in paragraph one, that is the devil, the world, and the flesh. But notice that the paragraph adds a fourth, and it's one in which we bear specific responsibility. It is the neglect of God's means of grace. It certainly has to do with the devil tempting and accusing us. It certainly has to do also with the trials and temptations that come to us from the world. It also has to do with the flesh that still remains with us against which we continue to wage war. But it also comes from us neglecting the very means of grace that God has appointed for our perseverance. Of gathering with the church, of the regular and right preaching of the word, of prayer, a fellowship, that the more we neglect these things, the more that our assurance is impaired. The more these things will be more evident in our life. The consequences then of such a great neglect is multifaceted. First, we incur God's displeasure. We grieve the Holy Spirit. Our graces and comforts become impaired. In other words, the comfort that we receive from the graces and the benefits of the covenant of grace in Christ, of our assurance, of the knowledge of our justification and our adoption, of our sanctification, all of that becomes impaired. It becomes a little bit fuzzy. It becomes wobbly. Not ultimately in Christ as if we could lose it, but in our apprehension of those things. Not only that, but we wound our conscience. 
that we have a hard time understanding what exactly it is that God has demanded from us and what he hasn't. We turn right and left things into right or wrong things, and we turn right and wrong things into right or left things, and in so doing, we wound our conscience. We sear our conscience. Our conscience becomes weakened. We see that in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Timothy 4. Not only that, our sin doesn't just hurt us, but it hurts and it scandalizes others. We are but one stone in a temple, and when one body hurts, the whole body feels it. We're going to see this this upcoming Sunday in 1 Corinthians 5, of the sting and the pain of the sin that was tolerated in the life of the church and of how it spreads like yeast in the church, scandalizing and harming the members of the church. Not only that, we bring temporary judgments on ourselves. 2 Samuel 12, 14. David, though he was in the covenant of grace by faith in the promises of God in Christ, yet God brought temporal judgments on him through the death of his firstborn as a result of his wickedness with Bathsheba. We don't want to presume on God beyond what God's word says concerning his judgments against us, but certainly he will discipline us in various ways when in unbelief we reject his word and walk according to our own wisdom and it's painful but in all of this we have this promise of preservation and i want you to notice what are the two things that are ultimately preserved in that last sentence Nevertheless, they will renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. It's pulling on those previous paragraphs, isn't it? That though repentance is the entry point to the Christian life, it's, not, it's also something that marks the Christian life all the way to our resurrections. That though faith may at times be weak or strong or look in a variety of different ways, yet our faith will be preserved. Repentance and faith, the very means whereby we apprehend Christ and come to possess the very salvation that he offers, will be established, it will be renewed, and it will be preserved by the grace of God in Christ. The example that perhaps is most helpful is Peter. Do you remember what Jesus says to Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-two? Peter boastfully says that he would never reject his Lord, and Jesus tells him, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. To sift you like wheat is to essentially separate you from me and from those who are in me by faith. He wants to pull you out of my hand. But I have prayed for you, he says. Why? That your faith may not fail. So here's the question. <laughs> Why does Peter's faith not fail? Why does Peter not end up like Judas? Why is Peter called the rock under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the hindsight of the apostolic writings? And why is Judas called that traitor? 
It's because of God's persevering grace and the intercession of Christ. That's why later on in Luke 22, verses 61 and 62, Peter hears the rooster crow a third time, and he knew it, didn't he? He knew what he had done. And it says he wept bitterly. At that moment, it wasn't the kind of weeping, the kind of worldly sorrow that, that Judas experienced. It was the kind of godly sorrow that leads to repentance and the life. Why was he renewed under repentance? And why, as the confession says, was his faith preserved? Jesus says, because I have prayed for you. You realize that when we get to like Hebrews, for instance, and it talks about Jesus making intercession for us, that's what he's doing. We could take Luke 22 and import it in Hebrews 6, and when it says he lives always to make intercession for us, what it's essentially saying is that he lives always to pray for you, that your faith may not fail, and that repentance unto life would be renewed over and over and over again until you come into possession of the salvation that he's won for you. And it won't fail. Why? <laughs> because he's a priest forever. He cannot grow weary or tired. And so he says, your faith will be preserved Repentance will be renewed because I pray for you. Look at chapter 15, verse 5. It's a good way to end. This is at the end of repentance and the life or salvation. God has made full provision through Christ in the covenant of grace to preserve believers in their salvation. Notice the language. Full provision through Christ in covenant to preserve believers. Thus, although there is no sin so small that is undeserving of damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it will bring damnation on those who repent. This makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. So why is it that we do not neglect the means of grace, the constant preaching of repentance and faith in Christ? Because those are the means that God has provided in Christ to preserve us all the way to the end. The doctrine of perseverance.